You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's August 9th. America is in mourning again. Within less than 24 hours this past weekend, there were two mass shootings that claimed more than 30 lives. First, in what appears to be an act of white supremacist terrorism, a gunman opened fire in a crowded Walmart in El Paso, Texas, killing 22 people and wounding more than two dozen others. Then, in a popular nightlife district in Dayton, Ohio, a lone shooter killed nine people and wounded 27 more. His motives are still unclear. These massacres came just one week after another mass shooting at a garlic festival in Gilroy, California. In the wake of these tragedies, the national debate about gun policy has intensified. Many citizens are demanding action from lawmakers. And just yesterday, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the Senate would discuss potential changes in September, when Congress returns from its summer recess. Background checks and red flag laws are expected to be part of that debate. One reason that this has been such a contentious policy area over the years is that there is broad disagreement about the potential effects of various gun laws. This is why RAND began its Gun Policy in America initiative last year, one of the largest studies ever conducted on the topic. We wanted to uncover what scientific evidence tells us. Our goal is to establish a shared set of facts that will improve public discussions and support the development of gun policies that are both fair and effective. To learn more and see our initial findings, visit rand.org gunpolicy. This week, Mike Pompeo became the first U.S. Secretary of State to visit Micronesia, where he met with leaders from that country, as well as the Marshall Islands and Palau. Located north and northeast of Australia and east of the Philippines, these three Pacific Island nations occupy an area of the ocean that's roughly the size of the continental U.S. Pompeo's visit highlights how important these countries are to U.S. defense and foreign policy interests. In fact, the U.S. military has exclusive and secure access to land, sea, and air routes in this enormous region. This is particularly significant because, as explained in a new RAND report, China's influence in the region is growing. To prevent further inroads by Beijing, the U.S., along with its allies and partners, should consider maintaining appropriate levels of funding to Micronesia, the Marshall Islands, and Palau. Another recommendation from the report is to increase U.S. engagement in the region. As lead author Derek Grossman puts it, America's Pacific Island allies are, quote, at the very heart of the U.S.-Indo-Pacific strategy. After losing its territorial caliphate in Iraq and Syria, ISIS will almost certainly attempt a comeback. And that will require money. To understand how ISIS might bankroll such a resurgence, RAND experts studied how the group has managed its finances. Their findings are outlined in a new RAND report out this week. In the past, ISIS used the land it controlled as a funding source, levying taxes and fees and selling oil from its fields. But without territory, ISIS can no longer rely on these revenue streams. And so the group is likely to return to criminal activities like extortion, kidnapping, and smuggling to raise money. It's also worth noting that ISIS appears to have sizable assets in reserve, as well as an international network of financial relationships. 
And even though the group is bringing in far less money, its operating costs have greatly decreased. To block these revenue streams, the report recommends that the U.S. stay involved with counter-ISIS activities. In Iraq and Syria, the most important efforts will be domestic intelligence gathering and law enforcement. In other words, as ISIS has transformed from a jihadist proto-state to a clandestine terrorist network, the strategy to defeat the group may need to evolve too. Washington was one of the first U.S. states to legalize recreational marijuana. Since licensed stores have now been operating there for several years, we have some data to help shed light on the state's cannabis market. A new Rand report details the types of cannabis products being manufactured and sold in Washington, as well as how much is being sold. From July 2016 through June 2017, approximately 26 metric tons of THC were sold in licensed retail stores in the state. This is more than double the amount of THC sold in licensed stores in the previous year. The report also provides insights into the total amounts of THC that residents obtained from both legal and illegal sources. Calculating this is difficult with existing data, but the authors estimate that between 40 and 60% of the THC obtained by state residents was likely purchased in Washington's state-licensed stores. More research is needed to understand why some residents are still obtaining cannabis products through other channels, what share of legal sales go to people who don't live in the state, and how efficient various cannabis products are at delivering THC. Past RAND research has shown that correctional education programs can be powerful. Inmates who take part in any kind of educational program behind bars are up to 43% less likely to reoffend and return to prison. Taxpayers stand to benefit, too. For every dollar invested in correctional education, they save nearly $5 in reincarceration costs over three years. Our most recent study on this subject evaluated a North Carolina prison education program in which inmates could enroll in college classes during the last two years of their incarceration, and then work toward a degree upon their release. The findings revealed some important lessons. One key takeaway was that it takes time to implement a prison and community-based program that has many partners and that targets a population with diverse needs. Another lesson? After being released, people in the program needed a lot of support to be able to stay in their education programs. This includes help with finding housing arrangements, addressing transportation needs, and, in some cases, resuming financial and parental responsibilities for their families. Rand's Lois Davis was the lead author of this study. She says that an overwhelming majority of students in the program were engaged and dedicated to furthering their education. They wanted to move on with their lives after prison. As initiatives like this become more common, understanding what works and what doesn't will help ensure that people who were once incarcerated can succeed after leaving prison, and the communities they return to will benefit as well. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. See you next week.